chapter 11 of Charles Simeon by Handley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Work in Weakness It is time to return to Simeon's life and labour at Cambridge. We have followed him in his interests to India and in his person to Scotland. But his diligence at home never knew any willing remission from the first to the last. There was indeed a long time during which his strength was reduced so much as to lessen his public activity, and even to keep him absent from Cambridge for many months. Early in 1807, after twenty-five years of intense work, in which Thornton's cautions had been too often forgotten, he felt his health fail, and particularly his voice became so weak that he could preach only with difficulty, and never more than once in the day. After each sermon he found himself, quote, more like one dead than alive, end quote. and even conversation was often impossible, unless in a whisper. This broken condition lasted with variations for thirteen years till he was just sixty, and then it passed away quite suddenly and without any evident physical cause. He was on his last visit to Scotland with Marsh in 1819, and found himself, to his great surprise, just as he crossed the border, Quote, almost as perceptibly renewed in strength as the woman was after she had touched the hem of our Lord's garment. End quote. He saw in this revival no miracle in the common sense of the word, yet a distinct providence. He says that he had been promising himself before he began to break down a very active life up to sixty, and then a Sabbath evening, and that now he seemed to hear his master saying, I laid you aside because you entertained with satisfaction the thought of resting from your labour, but now you have arrived at the very period when you had promised yourself that satisfaction, and have determined instead to spend your strength for me to the latest hour of your life. I have doubled, trebled, quadrupled your strength, that you may execute your desires on a more extended plan. Quote, I do not approve he says as he looks back in 1820, of fancying myself more an object of God's special care and favour than other people, and much less of recording any such conceit, but this particular interposition of the divine goodness I think I ought to see and acknowledge, end quote. Yet these years of comparative weakness were years of much and varied work. The reader may remember that some of the most important incidents given in the previous chapters fell within that time. He preached several courses at the University Church, 1810, 1811, 1815, on subjects which drew great attention, with a vigour which entirely concealed the effort which it cost. So great was the crowd in 1811 that many masters of arts were driven into the galleries to find room. The sermons of 1810, Evangelical and Pharisaic Righteousness Compared, drew him into a controversy of letters and pamphlets with the Master of Sydney, Edward Pearson, who charged him with setting up an impossible standard of holiness and applying it uncharitably to his neighbours. Both Pearson and Simeon, who had a wise counsellor in Farish, from whom he learned how to keep sarcasm and ridicule quite out of his replies, show well in this paper war, as regards mutual courtesy and the wish to be fair. Pearson incidentally speaks of Simeon with hearty respect, and Simeon's last letter to Pearson, March 1810, is worthy of quotation. My dear sir, permit me to return you my best thanks for the present of your remarks, and to say that I most cordially agree with you in terminating our public correspondence. I am persuaded that if circumstances should ever bring us into nearer acquaintance with each other, we should find that the difference between us, though certainly great, 
is not so great as may at first sight appear. Persons who have the same general design but differ in some particular modes of carrying it into execution often stand more aloof from each other than they do from persons whose principles and conduct they entirely disapprove. Hence prejudice arises and a tendency to mutual crimination, whereas if they occasionally conversed for half an hour with each other, they would soon rectify their mutual misapprehensions and concur in aiding rather than undermining the efforts of each other for the public good. The number of those who are zealous in the cause of religion is not so great, but that they may find ample scope for their exertions without wasting their time in mutual contentions, and it is my earnest wish that the only strife we may ever know in future may be that which the apostles recommend of contending earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints, and of provoking one another to love and good works. With these sentiments and wishes I beg leave to subscribe myself, dear sir, with great respect and esteem, your most obedient servant, C. Simeon. About the same time Simeon had to deal with the anxious crisis of the Bible Society's meeting, already described, and a little later came the last serious difficulties caused by opponents within his parish, trials which so oppressed him at the time, that he writes to a friend in 1812, quote, I used to sail in the Pacific, I am now learning to navigate the Red Sea, that is, full of shoals and rocks, end quote but the troubled period was not long. 1817 saw the last of it, and a year earlier he speaks of his church as better attended than ever, and sometimes half filled with gownsmen. Social trials, however, were not over by any means. He writes to Thomason, March 1816, and alludes to one of these. I have at this moment sweet consolation from the thought that God will ultimately be glorified in men whether they will or not. Such conduct is observed towards me at this very hour by one of the fellows of the college, as, if practised by me, would set not the college only, but the whole town and university in a flame. But the peace and joy which I experience from lying as clay in the potter's hands are more than I can express. I forbear to state particulars, but I know that, whether man give or take away, it is not man but the Lord, and that he doeth all things well." and that if we only wait to the end, we shall see infallible wisdom and unbounded goodness in his darkest dispensations. The example of our blessed Lord, who, without either threatening or complaint, committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, appears to me most lovely, and I have unspeakable delight in striving, and hitherto with some success, to tread in his steps. God has long taught you this lesson, and I am endeavouring to learn it day by day." A little of the Lokime will be an ample compensation for a good deal of flipsis. One personal incident, within the years now in view, illustrates Simeon's watchfulness for the spiritual good of individuals and his diligence out of season for his master. Early in his invalid period he was ordered to the Isle of Wight and was staying at the beautiful house known as St. John's, his brother Edward's home, still the seat of the Simeons of the Isle. There he found a young Dutch visitor, König by name, only son of an Amsterdam merchant, Edward Simeon's friend. The young man, full of brightness and social charm, had been sent to England to learn our language. Simeon's heart was drawn to him. He soon found that König was without religion and cast about how to win this soul for Christ. They rode round the island together with others of the St. John's party. One day, König saw Simeon's lips in motion without a sound, and asked very simply what he was saying. 
I was praying for my friend, was the answer, and the naturalness and love of the words found a way to the soul. König soon accepted an invitation to Cambridge, where he spent some months. There, in the words of Simeon's friend Matthew Preston, the much-occupied and now-enfeebled man, quote, spent no small portion of the day in cultivating the mind of this young foreigner and storing it with divine and human knowledge. The improvement of the scholar in other useful knowledge, but especially in spiritual discernment and devout feeling, was such as amply to repay his generous teacher. Indeed, his progress in the divine life was rapid and soon put to shame some who had contributed to the happy result. In a tour through England and Scotland, Mr. König, not content with seeing and reporting on the ordinary objects of interest, explored as he went the abodes of misery, the infirmaries and the cottages of lonely poverty, ministering to the sufferers' instruction and consolation as well as pecuniary relief. The remembrance of that youth, graceful in person and beaming with benignity, is even now redolent with everything lovely and of good report. He returned to Holland, where he died of consumption, but not till he had been permitted to witness for his saviour a good confession in his native city. The report of his behaviour during his death illness excited interest and surprise at Amsterdam, where his family was well known. Many seemed to say, what new thing is this? Such blessings from above seemed to precede and follow Mr. Simeon, even when he was sent, as it were, into the desert. Conversant as he was with the largest projects for the conversion of nations, yet he was ready also to seek diligently for a single sheep that was gone astray. So indeed it had been with him from the first. In the very early days of his ministry, in 1783, as he was sitting in a country churchyard for a funeral, he saw a young woman reading the epitaphs and called her attention to one which spoke of the Christian's peace through the sacrifice of Christ, when from the dust of death we rise. Quote, when you can say that from the heart, you will be happy indeed, but till then you will enjoy no real happiness. End quote. She owned herself at once to be miserable and hopeless, so poor that God seemed to forsake her mother, her children, and herself. Simeon took her address, visited the cottage to verify the story, then went again and again to arrange for the relief of the almost starving family, and led the young widow and her mother to their saviour's feet. They lived and died as faithful Christians. Their friend found afterwards that, at the moment she spoke to the unhappy stranger among the tombs, she was on the way to throw herself into the river. I have wandered from Cambridge, but only for a few moments. One other deviation, and we return. In 1814, Edward Simeon died in the Isle of Wight, after a long and painful illness. All the old prejudices against his brother's enthusiasm were gone long before the end, and Charles had the great happiness of seeing Edward, the upright and successful man of business, welcome the common salvation with great simplicity and joy, and at last depart in peace. Before he died, he pressed his brother, in the warmth of loving gratitude, to accept the half of his large property. But the earnest wish was in vain. To yield to it would have compelled Charles, as a matter of honour, to resign his fellowship, and it would probably have made it his duty to leave Cambridge. He was certain that Cambridge and his position at King's were God's order for him, and nothing was to be allowed to move him. But he accepted a bequest of fifteen thousand pounds... How and with what purpose his own words shall tell. Memorandum. K.C. Cambridge. 
Last week I returned from Bristol, where I witnessed a thing almost unprecedented in the annals of the world, a whole city combining to fill up by their united exertions the void made in all charitable institutions by the loss of one man, Richard Reynolds, a member of the society called Quakers. Having myself acted in some measure upon that idea in relation to my dear and honoured brother, Edward Simeon, I take this opportunity of recording it for the satisfaction of myself and my executors. My brother was extremely liberal and did good to a vast extent. At his death an exceeding great void would have been made if I had not determined to accept a part of his property and to appropriate it to the Lord's service and the service of the poor. The loss they would have sustained being about seven hundred or eight hundred a year, I suffered my brother to leave me fifteen thousand pounds, and have regularly consecrated the interest of it to the Lord, and shall, deo volente, continue to do so to my dying hour. Had I wished for money for my own use, I might have had half his fortune, but I wanted nothing for myself, being determined, as far as such a thing could be at any time said to be determined, to live and die in college, where the income which I previously enjoyed, though moderate in itself, suffices not only for all my own wants, but for liberal supplies to the poor also. These things are well known at present in our college. Mr. Blank, in particular, as a counsel, examined my brother's will, wherein there is proof sufficient of these things, but at a future period they may be forgotten, and persons may wonder that, with my income, I did not resign my fellowship. The fact is, I have not increased my own expenditure above fifty pounds a year, nor do I consider myself as anything but a steward of my deceased brother for the poor. Long previous to his death, I refused what was considered as the best living of our college, and I should equally refuse anything that the king himself could offer me, that should necessitate me to give up my present situation, and especially my church. And I write this now, that if, after my decease, it should be asked, why did he not vacate his fellowship, my executor may have a satisfactory answer at hand. It lies in a short space. First, if twice fifteen thousand pounds were offered me to vacate my fellowship, I would utterly reject it. Second, the legacy I have received I do not consider as mine, but as belonging to the poor and to the Lord, and I am only the steward to whose hands it is committed. Third, the proof of this will be found in my refusal of any living before, as well as since my brother's death, and in my account books, wherein the disposal of this money is regularly entered. Witness my hand this, 19th of October, 1816. I may add here a note which Mr. Carras has kindly communicated to me. Quote, the £15,000 which his brother desired him to accept as a legacy, he carefully preserved intact, to be given back eventually to the family, using only the interest to carry on his brother's charities. His nephew, Sir R. G. Simeon, Bart, having been returned MP for the Isle of Wight, and having thus considerably increased his expenses, Mr. Simeon determined at once to be his own executor, and give his nephew the sum which he had proposed to leave him as a legacy. To execute this purpose he went off to London early one summer's morning, and proceeded to the bank to transfer £10,000 to his nephew's account. I saw him the same evening on his return to college, so well and happy to have done this service to his beloved nephew. End quote. This was in 1832. Footnote. I may be allowed to mention another of his visits to London one year earlier. My father-in-law, one of the Elliot family of Brighton, was to be married and Simeon was to officiate. He went to London by mistake a week too soon, but this was not to prevent his doing a friend's part, old as he was, and far from Cambridge as London was then. 
he appeared again on the right day. End footnote. Certainly, he was consistent in a noble indifference to money. It was no easy-going carelessness. He once gave twenty pounds to an accountant as a fee for the detection of a puzzling mistake of one penny in his private accounts. But gain, for its own sake, was as dust beneath his feet. Simeon's sense of the extreme importance and awful responsibility of the work of church patronage was deep and practical. He had no objection on principle to our certainly anomalous system, but he felt that it cries aloud for conscientious and religious care if it is to work good at all. And a plan presented itself early to his mind. He would acquire by purchase the patronage of such livings as he could, and commit it to trustees who should be men of fidelity and prayer. His enterprise, for which Henry Thornton had given a precedent, soon drew the attention of men who knew and trusted him, and who could either give him funds for purchase or make over their own patronage into his hands. So grew up the Simeon Trust, which now has to do with a large number of English parishes. Most solemn is Simeon's charge to his trustees to take care that nothing comes first in their reasons for selection but the glory of God and the fitness of the particular man for the parish in question. I may quote here, for it refers to the year 1810, a record of personal recollections of Simeon. It was written by the late canon John Babington of Brighton, who died in 1885, at the great age of 96, full to the last of Christian cheerfulness and active almost to the last in work for God. He married late in life Eleanor Elliot, granddaughter of Henry Venn. The two in their beautiful old age were a sight never to be forgotten. The paper of Recollections, written October 1882, contains the following passages. Quote, Seventy-two years have passed this month since my first interview with Mr. Simeon. I had just gone up as a freshman. I had heard much of him as a most devoted servant of Christ. He was to my young mind a genuine hero, but I was not unaware of his eccentricities, of his impulsiveness, and while my veneration for him was almost extreme, I rather shrank from very close contact with him. But all this vanished at my first interview. His kindness to me, a perfect stranger, his gentleness, the cordiality of my reception, opened an entirely new view of his character, and attached me to him with a union of admiration and affection that never passed away. I had well known what enmity had been shown towards him by men of mark who did not care to conceal their animosity, and who never hesitated to avow their purpose to thwart Mr. Simeon in every possible way. I could not but apprehend that this collision of opinion must have an injurious effect on the temper and character of so impulsive a man, and to a certain extent perhaps it was so. But I saw nothing of it. I was always on the watch, as it were, for some imprudence, as trembling for one whom I had learnt to love and admire so truly. How well the maturity of his prudence subsequently manifested itself is well seen in the course he took at the establishment of the Cambridge Bible Society." I attended his ministry. Never, either before or since, have I heard a preacher who seemed so to take me by the hand and lead me aside into close communion with himself as to the state of my own soul. Much later in life, I, as well as many others, was well aware of his unbounded liberality. I had taken up the case of three ladies, daughters of one whom he had known in earlier years as amongst the very few of the clergy who, with Grimshaw, Venn, and others, had stood boldly for the truth against an ungodly and a scoffing world. His reply was quite characteristic. A man who has given away his capital has not much more to give. 
but a cheque for £25 was enclosed. End quote. Another paper lies on my table beside Mr. Babington's. It also is dated October 1882, and, like the other, is addressed to the Reverend John Barton, to whose kindness I owe the sight and use. The writer is Dr. Francis Close, former Dean of Carlisle. Quote, in October 1816 I presented my introduction to him. From that day till his death he was my affectionate father, and my wise and helpful counsellor. There were few like him, a perfect gentleman, a deeply taught Christian. His knowledge of men and things was wonderful, and his conversation about them original and unique. There was a racy wit about him, and a natural playfulness, perfectly captivating. He had a surprising faculty for reproving persons for their faults with great fidelity, yet without offending them. "'How do you manage to do this?' said I one day to him. "'I will tell you the secret,' said he. "'Observation has taught me that men's faults and failings generally lie immediately above their excellencies.' so I first always give them full credit for their good qualities, and then they are more disposed to listen to their delinquencies. For instance, there is an evangelist whom I much admire. He gets into the pulpit, opens his Bible, and looks round on his large congregation with a somewhat defiant aspect, and then he fully declares both judgment and mercy. But perhaps there is a little want of love and gentleness and consideration for the weak and timid and looking upon his great arched eyebrows, I instantly perceived that his illustration was intended for myself. But I must forbear. Age and increasing infirmities warn me. I should have liked to say something of his vastly extended influence, and to trace the parallel between Pusey at Oxford and Simeon at Cambridge. But I must leave that work to others, only recording that I was vice-president at his jubilee festival, and an astonished spectator at his funeral. End quote. Dr. Corrie, Master of Jesus College, who was, as we saw above, introduced to Simeon in 1813, writes similarly a sheet of reminiscence. One incident is as characteristic of both Simeon and Corrie as it is amusing. Quote, I cannot omit one instance out of many as a mark of his kind nature. It occurred to me, when I was almost a freshman, on returning one evening after the Thursday evening service to Mrs. Dornford's, in Peace Hill, I was asked by a junior member of the family what I thought of Mr. Simeon's sermon. I replied, it was too long by half, little thinking my questioner would observe to Mr. Simeon, what do you think this boy says of your sermon? Mr. Simeon did not affect to hear the remark, but on its being repeated, replied, the boy is right, I felt it so myself. He was not in the least offended. End, quote. End of chapter 11